0: Hey, listeners, one of our goals of this podcast is to build a vibrant community around the business of wine. We've been delivering compelling and educational content for two years. We have really appreciated the outreach and engagement from you, our dear listeners, and a number of you have asked how you can help support the show.
1: We love making the show and keeping the quality high, so we decided to launch a Patreon account where you can get access to our full library of episodes with more benefits to come. We've set the contribution to $5 a month to encourage as many people as possible to participate go to patreon.com/xchateau to sign up we'll put a link in our show notes and on xchateau.com and we'll be announcing new patrons with each episode welcome to x chateau, chateau
2: the podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights with your hosts Robert Vernick and Peter Young
0: Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today, our guests are Debbie Novograd, the CEO of BevZero, and Kayla Winter, the Director of Product Services and Winemaking at BevZero. And today we're going to be talking about the trends and the whole business of low alcohol, lowering alcohol, and no alcohol wines in the wine industry. Welcome to the show, ladies. Thank you.
2: Thanks for having us. So
0: I was hoping we could briefly get some background of each of you. So maybe we'll start with you, Debbie. What is your background? And talk to us a little bit about how you became the CEO of BevZero.
3: Yeah, great. Thank you. My background is really food and beverage. So I've been in the food and beverage realm for a lot of years. I've done a multitude of things. Probably most notably was work within the regional, national, and then international space with Starbucks as they were growing early in their days. And so saw a lot of development just in meeting consumer needs, quite honestly, understanding them, meeting them, identifying new innovative opportunities. And that's probably the most relevant when it comes to what we're doing here at BevZero. You know, in addition to that, worked with larger companies, Airmark, Marriott, again, all in the food and beverage space and specifically marketing business development. With BevZero, I've been here for just uh, over seven years started with BevZero when it was ConeTech, which I'm sure we'll touch on at some point, and have moved into the CEO role over the past few years. Our founder passed away, so we can talk more about that, but that's my background.
0: And Kayla, as Director of Product service, and Winemaking, I'm sure we have a lot of interesting questions to cover later on, but I'd love to talk about what your role is at BevZero as well.
2: Well, for starters, I, I have a background in much more traditional winemaking, alcohol included was born and raised in Sonoma County, California. Don't come from a winemaking family, but obviously was just exposed. You can't walk outside without seeing a vineyard somewhere. So I actually went to Cornell University to study winemaking, viticulture oenology to get out of California and kind of learn how the other parts of the world make wine, which was a great experience in Kind of widening my horizons and then came back and have been working in cellars, labs, vineyards across various wineries in Sonoma and Napa. Prior to Bev Zero, I was working at Paul Hobbs. And then here at Bev Zero, I started off as the winemaker and really came to help apply my traditional winemaking knowledge to these new categories. I've been here for two years, and now I'm, as you said, Director of Winemaking and Product Services, which does cover winemaking, but also a lot of our other services like cider, spirits, non-wine beverages.
0: This is maybe for you, Kayla. In terms of like high-level, when people want to explore low-alcohol, no-alcohol, or reducing alcohol in their wines... There's a couple of main technologies out there and, you know, reverse osmosis and spinning cones and obviously BevZero specializes in the latter, but I'm curious on, maybe you could give our listeners a high level breakdown of the differences of, between those two technologies and then we can dive into the cone tech side of it.
2: So reverse osmosis is a little bit more of an intrusive process where you're putting the product through filters, removing a large part of that water as well as alcohol and then it can only bring down the product by a few percentages, ABV, per pass. So when you're starting with something at 14 16%, it's going to take multiple passes and pull up quite a fair amount of volume out of that product before it gets down to 0%. Spinning cone technology uses thin film vacuum distillation, which combines putting the product under a vacuum, having the product go over these cones that are alternating spinning and still. So that basically creates a thin film, which increases surface area. And those two factors plus adding a fair amount of heat, not definitely nowhere near an actual still. We're looking more at like 37 degrees Celsius. So warm, you can still touch the, touch the still. Those three factors together allow us to extract alcohol without cooking the product with very minimal effort. And the wine also only spends a few seconds in the still at a time. So what comes off of our machines is much more similar to the original product than it would be if you ran it through a reverse osmosis machine.
0: Great. That's an amazing summary. Thank you so much. And so BevZero was founded in 1991 as ConeTech. I was wondering if you could give us a brief overview of what is BevZero? What does it specialize in for the wine industry?
3: So yes, was founded as Contech and spent roughly 28 years as such. Contech really was founded to be a tool in the winemaker's tool belt to allow them to adjust their alcohols more than remove it completely, but at that point adjust. So if it was a very hot year, a very dry year, sugars were high and therefore alcohols were high, a winemaker might want to adjust for what we call sweet spotting, really for sensory profile reasons. Quite honestly, early on and prior to 2018, there was also a excise tax that was in place. And so alcohols over 14 paid a much higher excise tax. So the process was used as well for those purposes. Since then, and the reason we're now called BevZero, is Tech really was focused on that space using the technology, the spinning cone, for that purpose of adjustment. And what we've seen over the past Decades certainly, and perhaps a little bit more in our European locations first, and then come to the US now. Is that the trends in the low and no alcohol have continued to grow at such a rapid pace that what we can do with our technologies, as well as with our expertise, is really help to guide customers and enable them in creating new innovative products. So, specifically in the no alcohol space and as well in the low alcohol space. And so that transition from cone Tech, which really kind of established us as a spinning cone column operator, if you will, to Bev Zero, which really helps position us and provide our customers the awareness that we can help bring to market with them new innovative products in that no and low alcohol space. So that zero space, which we're seeing just globally tremendous growth around
1: So just as a point of clarification, the spinning cone or the vacuum distillation technology, is it only for alcohol removal or can you do other things with it?
3: That's a really good question. Um, So the spinning cone column was actually originally intended, I guess, for heavy water. That's where it was founded and brought into the wine space by our founder, Tony Dan. He really introduced it to the wine industry as a method because it could manage by molecular weight to pull off different substances, the opportunity to use it for alcohol adjustment. So it is used now in the wine industry because of Tony bringing it. Very honestly, it is used in the beer industry. It's used in the dairy industry. It can actually facilitate more turbid situations. So it can have some solids in it. It can separate based on molecular weight beyond alcohol. We use it in the alcohol space in order to do that separation. So it it can be used otherwise. It's actually a technology not made by us. We now both employ, if you will, we utilize and also distribute a secondary technology, which is very similar. Also a vacuum distillation called GOLO technology.
0: And is that something that is in house just to Bev Zero, or I mean, because you guys have operations in multiple locations? We
3: do. So we have operations in um, Spain, in South Africa, in California, and a location as well, still under the name Contec, in Chile. Spinning cone column is actually available. It's a technology others can as well utilize. We, by far, have the majority, certainly in the wine space as well. So we have, you know over a dozen spinning comb columns in our total portfolio over the years. So we employ it at the largest levels, if you will. But it's, it's available. There are wineries out there that have their own, have purchased their own. I think it's really a scale question. It's very expensive technology. And so for a winery or a manufacturer of any type to purchase it, it really depends on the scale of the volume they're doing.
0: If we were to look at your kind of like client base or maybe even by volume and look at like the sweet spot, bringing down a couple degrees to get into the right alcohol versus low alcohol wines versus no alcohol wines, how would you see the breakdown by volume or by percentage of
3: clients? Yeah, wonderful question. So I will say in Europe, it is 99% going all the way down to zero. It's all they do. Adjustment is really not a method that's often used for multiple reasons. Here in the States, up until about two years ago, it was probably the flip, 90% was adjustment and very little was on the low and no alcohol. We are seeing the low and no alcohol space grow tremendously. So this year, gosh, I want to say we're roughly 30% no and low alcohol and trending more towards 50% next year. And really the only reason it's still that low is because the low and no alcohol customers are still doing much smaller volume than the adjustment customers. So it's the very large players typically out there that work in the adjustment space. And what we've been seeing is in the lower alcohol space, some of the large players are beginning to get in. And when we say lower alcohol, for our purposes in wine, we speak to it roughly five and a half, six 6% up to 10%. Is what their finished product will look like Um, and then in the no alcohol space it's really been the brand innovators the entrepreneurs that have gotten in the forefront of this category and we're only now beginning to see the interest of the large players wanting to get into it so that's where to answer your question big players mostly the adjustment business moving into the low alcohol business Small players really filling up that gap in the no alcohol, but starting to grow.
1: And just out of curiosity, how much do these machines cost?
3: Mm-hmm. Great question. So the spinning cone column, which, you know, is where we have been and started as, I think the small unit, which is a thousand liters an hour, starts roughly around one and a half million and it goes up from there. So we own a couple 1Ks, multiple 10Ks, and as well as 20 k. The Golo technology, which is similar in style, it's vacuum distillation. It has some efficiencies that are over and above that of the spinning cone column and has really been built what we say to purpose. So you buy a wine machine, a beer machine, a spirits machine. You can do a combination, but that adds complexity and cost. The Golo technology starts at about half to two thirds that price. So it's a much more affordable technology.
1: Someone really does need a decent amount of scale to want to buy their own. So we'd love to focus on the trends of the low and no alcohol wine sector specifically. Do you have a sense of how big this industry is today?
3: Yeah, no, really great question. The wine industry today, from a global perspective, is right just shy of $2 billion in USD. So it's growing, it's been growing at a rapid rate, but it's right around $2 billion. What they're projecting, though, is where the really interesting aspect to it is. And the lower end projections over the next 10 years are roughly getting to three and a half, four billion, all the way up to a high side of about six billion. So there's huge growth opportunity. In fact, you know, IWSR, which is one of the foremost experts out there, has for the first time ever projected that the growth of the no and low alcohol space is growing at a much higher clip. Than the actual alcohol space. Alcohol is growing at less than 1%, and no and low alcohol growing at around 7% CAGR. So it's, you know, for the first time, we're really seeing the opportunity. And wine specifically, which is a really interesting question, has been slower in the growth of this category. In Europe, it's grown, and there's multiple reasons on that, including governmental, you know, drunk driving reasons. In the U.S., it's been a slower growth, but the U.S. is actually poised to have the biggest opportunity in the wine category as far as future growth, which I I find to be a really intriguing comment. So So
1: the the two billion today, that's all alcohol? Would that include beer? and?
3: No, the two billion today is all non-alcohol. So there's two billion USD out there as far as non-alcoholic beverages in the category. So it's a big category. Okay, it's not small.
1: But non non alcoholic beer and spirits, as well as wine, or yes. is that so That just wine.
3: Yes, that is all. So in wine alone, from a North America, it's roughly four hundred and fifty million.
1: And so you said that's just all no alcohol. How, what about the low alcohol segment?
3: Yeah, good question. You know, I don't have a number specific on the low alcohol, and part of that reason is the U.S. is a bit of an anomaly. Low alcohol is a fascinating opportunity in the U.S., Australia, and a couple other small locations. But low alcohol really hasn't found its place globally. It's more here in the U.S. and the larger players have jumped into that. I I don't have a number on the top of my head, so I apologize. But in the U.S. market, it actually does attribute from a volume perspective more than the no alcohol right now.
0: And I'm curious, you mentioned the change in the growth over the market. Do you believe that wine is a growing segment in that growth or beer and other spirits that are in low and no alcohol outpacing that?
3: Beer right now is about 75% of the total space. So it is by far the highest player. Also true in alcohol, right? It it mirrors alcohol as well as no alcohol. But I think wine, and, and I'll let Kayla comment on this after too, it's been a harder nut to solve. Wine is a little trickier because one, you can't ferment your product in order to make it non-alcoholic, which is easier to do in beer. It's a much longer process in wine. and there's a much larger education process and once you remove all the alcohol, what do you do with it? So I do think there have been products in market that were subpar in profile and sensory. and so a lot of people were not as inclined to trial product. and now that there's new, Higher quality, more premium products coming to market. There's more people interested in trialing them. So I don't know, Kayla, if you want to comment on why wine is a little behind the curve. You think? Yeah, definitely. I think
2: you briefly touched on kind of both reasons. One, it's a lot harder to make a non-alcoholic wine than it is a spirit or a beer. Wine, as you guys know, as sommeliers, is so much more complex, and there's there's so many nuances that describe just that. It tastes like wine, that wineness that a lot of people, especially beginning can you know consumers that are starting to look at this and tasting wine themselves, can't put their finger on. So how do you then replicate that with food grade tools? It's very difficult. So it starts with identifying the right base wine, the right alcoholic wine that we then put on our machines. And there's definitely an art and science to that. Some wines just don't dealkalize as as well as others. And that's something that we've kind of positioned ourselves to be building experts in. Even beyond that, once the product comes off and it is non alcoholic, it's an FDA product. There's no alcohol, it's not TTB regulated, apart from the TTB guidelines that you can't call it a Chardonnay if it's a Merlot. But beyond that, the ingredients that you can add is exponentially greater. So we can start to look at natural flavors, other mouthfeel agents, pretty much anything. And so that opens it up to some very fun categories like adaptogens and functional ingredients, cannabis, CBD, those things. But even then, those are not always naturally present in alcoholic wine. So, that process of building back and adding ingredients to replicate something as complex and nuanced as wine is just so difficult that if, if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. So, that's kind of the, the biggest hurdle. But on the flip side of that, I do think that. Until consumers demanded high quality non-alcoholic wine, the only non alk wine on the market in the U.S. was wine that probably wasn't very good to start with. Was dealkalized, added a bunch of sugar just to make it palatable, and put on the market. And millions and millions of cases have been sold in that category. So, from a winemaking perspective, you know I've tasted wines like that, and I, I came went into this thinking non alk wine is disgusting. There's no hope for it not sure if I can be much service here, but sure, I'll try. And then once I really started piecing apart every piece of the puzzle, then I realized, no, there's a lot you can do here. It's just not easy and we just have to work on it. And And that's kind of what we've been doing for the last couple of years.
0: Just because alcohol is a main component of the structure of a wine, both on the body, that as you mentioned, but also on the aromatics in terms of a lot of times low alcohol or no alcohol wines have a lost or muted aromatics because that the, the esters aren't evaporating off like they would if they had alcohol
2: in there. Correct. Yeah.
1: Well, alcohol is a solvent too, right? So it's probably getting more of the other compounds and keeping it in the wine.
2: When you run our 0.5% products, we actually do strip off some of that essence and add it back to the wine after we remove alcohol. So certain volatile compounds, a lot of esters will be retained, but they'll be slightly muted. So depending on the wine, if we're starting with an aromatic white, not a lot we have to do to it on the back end. But if you're looking at like a Pinot or a Cab, there's quite a bit that we need to kind of look at to build back the structure as well and, and the flavor compounds.
0: I am curious in terms of the price points that low and no alcohol wines can achieve in the market and how is that trending? Are you starting to see the segments widen?
3: Yes, is the answer. So where, you know, as Kayla was speaking, I think the old non-alcoholic wines have passed, sat right around five, $6 a bottle, if you will, maybe a little higher. And that was probably one of the biggest negatives to the category in general, as people perceived it as a very low quality product for multiple reasons. What we've been seeing lately and, you know, to all of our satisfaction is people really pushing that upwards. So, there's products in this category now, especially in the sparkling, that are as high as you know thirty dollars for a bottle, high twenties, thirty dollars, and for the still and sparkling. But it really did take, as Kayla said, you know, it took the consumer desiring this product, not drinking it because they had to, but desiring this product to really allow that price point to be pushed up. So people are seeing it as a preferred beverage versus a sacrifice. So I would say still the majority, Kayla, and, and you work closer with a lot of our customers, are probably in that, you know, $10 to $20 range, right around $12 to $15. But we are seeing the super premiums push up into that, you know, high twenties at $30 a bottle.
2: And our largest customer right now is selling both still and sparkling between $25 to $30 a bottle. So there's clearly a market for those willing to pay that price point. And looking at that, it's likely a mix of consumers who are wine drinkers and used to paying that much money for a bottle and those who are just looking for an alternative, but you know, have some semblance of uh, expendable income.
1: So you mentioned that whites might be easier than reds. Are there specific wine styles that are better for low, creating a good quality low alcohol or no alcohol? Wine versus others?
2: Yeah. So if you just look at the nature of the dealkalization process, it's kinda easy to, to figure out what dealkalizes well because basically we're pulling off alcohol and a bit of water in the process. So the product, everything volatile is being extracted and everything non volatile is being condensed and concentrated. So your acid, color, tannins, sugar, polyphenolics, all of that is going to remain in the wine. So it's not as conducive to start off with a really big petite Syrah, for example. It's going to be not palatable when it comes off. But when you're looking at some of the more flabbier varietals, very fruit forward, those downclays great. And again, aromatic whites, um, because they have so much to offer, even if they come off a little muted, they're still popping. Unfortunately at this stage, we haven't had a ton of experience dealkalizing the more obscure varietals because most of our clients really just want to start with the big four. Even then, like recently, I we we did a few different Gavirschaminers and they came out wonderfully. It was almost like I was ready to put that in a bottle and just drink it straight. So it really does depend. Yes, reds are of course harder, harder to replicate on the back end too, just because of those nuances and then in terms of sparkling i mean sparkling wine sparkling non-alcoholic wines i should say do very well in the market and we believe it's because those bubbles kind of mask that lack of weight and mouthfeel that you get with uh without alcohol however for those products we don't start with sparkling bases because those are usually too acidic and of course we can't do any method while with a secondary fermentation that would defeat the purpose of not having alcohol in there so We start off with a wine we would normally create for a still wine, but then we just force carbonate afterwards.
0: What are the main use cases for consumers wanting low or no alcohol wines?
3: Honestly, the main use of them right now is people who are still drinking alcohol. So they're using them primarily Whether it be on a given day, so on the weekdays they drink non-alk, the weekends they drink their alcohol, or they're using them within a single experience. So they might start with non-alk, have a glass or two of that, and then have their alcohol or vice versa. I think, you know, shockingly, the percentage I saw out there was somewhere around 70% of the people using non-alcoholic beverages are actually doing just that. They're using them at times, but they're not necessarily abstainers. The abstaining group is actually a very small percentage of the people utilizing these products. I think the other interesting, at least for me, was that while this category typically was, you know, pregnant people couldn't drink alcohol, you know, alcohol anonymous, and then it shifted to really the Gen Z generation, which was just pushing back on alcohol, it's really become more of a product that is going across generations because people are using it at different points of their day, at different points of their week for different reasons. So it's really cross-generational. I think the, you know, over 50 is still the lowest case users just because they're so tried and true in whatever tradition they have, but you're really seeing it otherwise across all generations and across both male and female. You know, wine tends to be a little heavier on the female side for the non-alcoholic space where beer Tends to be more male, but it's really starting to even out as there's more products in the market for options. So, you know, it's wonderful from our perspective to see it moving into a, a much more cross generational, cross demographic space. I, I will add, though, and Kayla alluded to this earlier, it does still tend to be primarily more a higher economic group that is choosing these products. Some of them are expensive if you're a quality product. And it's not always everyone around the table wanting that product. It might be one person at the table that wants it.
0: I I am curious though, because we, we often talk about the groups together. Do you think that the consumer, behavior or the consumer use case for low alcohol is slightly different than the no alcohol because you'd mentioned classically people think of people that are nursing or pregnant or you know that have given up alcohol for health reasons do you think that the low alcohol is a, is a slightly different use case?
3: Yes and no and I, I say it that way because yes in those that are really focusing they love their alcohol but they want to do something slightly better from a calorie from a you know a alcohol perception. Those are your, no al- or your low alcohol users, I'm sorry. And specifically the lower alcohol wines have really been promoted as that lower calorie, lower carb, lower. So that's the purpose of that product. It's the demographic it's been targeting where the no alcohol is either the abstainers, the pregnant women, or it is those that really want to switch it up. And it's that switch it up group that goes across low and no. I don't think those are as much differentiated. I don't know, Kayla, you might have a slightly different perspective being in a younger age group too. So,
2: Yeah, no, I would agree with everything you said, Debbie. The only thing I would add is just that I think a lot of this has come in the wake of the white claw and seltzer boom. And so especially for, you know, I'm a millennial and I enjoy going poolside and, and sipping, you know, a beverage throughout the day and not wanting to get dehydrated and Extremely intoxicated, and so that's why a lot of people are gravitating towards these seltzers. They're lower alcohol, and you can kind of sip them slowly. Uh, at least wines in, uh, at least California wines aren't always conducive for that kind of a uh, environment. And so, I think for wineries that are thinking to, about getting into this, it's not a matter of competing with your own products. It's having more products for different situations and different uses, and basically just widening the categories that you can serve your clients
0: in. It seems like when you're in that category, especially in the no alcohol camp, you're competing with a wide swath of other alternative products that aren't alcohol related. It's like when you go to a bar and you want a mocktail, like, oh, someone's going to make something for me. But like the there's only ever usually like one non- low alcohol or no alcohol beer on the menu. And it's like, then they're competing with anything else that could be made at that bar or restaurant. I'm just curious. on it seems like you'd be open to a lot more competition in this category.
2: Yeah, I get that question a lot. People are like, why wouldn't I just drink a coconut water? Like, why would I bother with this? But I feel like we all have been in that situation where we're at a party or engagement, we're deciding not to drink for whatever reason. And so we're walking around with water or a soda or something. And there's people walking by, hey, why aren't you drinking? Like, come on, join the fun. Like, you are immediately ostracizing yourself from that engagement. If you're not like everyone else, unfortunately. And, and I think on a larger scale, identifying those social situations and figuring it out as a societal problem is one thing, but that's a little bit too big for something I can tackle. So instead, I'm just going to help create products that are inclusive without forcing someone to consume higher calories or you know alcohol and potentially be out of their comfort zone in, in a different headspace than they're wanting to be in that moment.
3: And if I can add to that real quick, too, I think, you know, not participating in those same events, you know, it's really a ritualistic reason. A lot of times, I think people have that glass of wine at five o'clock or at six o'clock or sit down at the table with dinner. And so a non-alcoholic wine still fits that. It still meets that ritualistic need where uh, coconut water or soda or, uh, you know, an iced tea doesn't. And so there's sort of a habitual element that the non-alcoholic still fills if you choose not to have the alcohol, whether it be to Kayla's point at a party or an event, or even in just an everyday, you know, ritual situation.
0: I'm curious, we see a number of trends in terms of people consuming alcohol, but wanting to, especially in younger generations, wanting to consume slightly less alcohol, people looking that are more health conscious, not wanting to have as much alcohol in in their body, but also wanting to to know where their food and, and wines come from and like understanding that organic aspect. And so it, it seems like an interesting split because as you remove alcohol, you do have to add in other things. And I'm curious on how do you navigate that space where you're like, this demographic wants lower alcohol wines, but sometimes you have to make adjustments in order to make it, A really solid product. So in terms of organoleptically, I said that correct. organoleptically (laughs)
2: uh,
0: on on their palate. So I'm curious on how do you balance that to make sure that transparency that a lot of that demographic wants as well?
2: Yeah. Well, when you have a non-alcoholic product, you're forced to have that transparency with the nutritional panel and the ingredients list on the back, which is great. And even for low alcohol, it's not required, but we see a lot of our clients doing that for that purpose. But it definitely would be easy to just dump a bunch of sugar and preservatives into a product and call it a day. Unfortunately, well, fortunately, actually, in my opinion, that's not what consumers want. So we have to be creative with the things that we're adding and make sure that we're calorie conscious and label conscious. A lot of our clients sweeten with grape juice concentrate, nowhere near the level that brings them back up to the calories of an alcoholic wine, but just adding you know, couple grams per liter just to kind of smooth out the product. And it's a naturally grape derivative sugar. So that's something that we see consumers gravitating and, and receiving well because they realize that it's a natural part of the winemaking process anyways. starting out with the, that grape juice. And their natural flavors, really, we haven't seen any of our clients say that their consumers are turned off by that. I think they would be if we were adding artificial flavors or anything like that. But, you know, essences, natural flavors, a lot of people see those in other products that are deemed, you know, healthy, like seltzer waters and things like that. So it's definitely something that we look at very closely when we're developing products for our clients. But there is a little bit of leniency that we've seen consumers give us in that space.
0: I'm curious, one last trend that you guys have seen over the years. Have you seen the amount of The sweetness in the final product of the residual sugar, have you seen that come down substantially over time? And if so, could you ballpark like by how much?
2: Yes, definitely. Um, (laughs) If you're looking at it from a calorie standpoint, I've seen non-alcoholic products, the wine specifically have as much if not more calories than their alcoholic counterpart, (laughs) only because of the sugar being added. So we've definitely seen that trend towards wanting something to taste like wine, wanting it to be premium catering to a market that's not just looking for the sweetest product out there. And so the formulas we've been developing for clients have been significantly lower. It can be maybe high 20 gram per liter, maybe a little bit higher, but most of them stick underneath that, which is historically has not been the case.
1: So the whole wine industry as a whole has kind of not been growing that fast, especially on a consumption basis in the last few years. Does that impact the demand for the low, no alcohol wine segment?
3: I think it actually, you know, depending on which way you look at it, it actually enhances the demand. So people are moving away and they're looking for alternatives for all the reasons we've already talked about, for health reasons, for, you know, reducing alcohol consumption. You know, and as Kayla indicated as well, you know, depending on the geography where your wine is coming from, there's very different ranges of alcohol. So I actually believe that the the trend away rather than being seen as a a negative in the opportunity for low and no should be seen as a positive because it's not that people aren't drinking beverages, they're choosing something else. So, you know, whether it had been the spiked seltzers because people wanted to stick at five or 6% or it really creates, in my mind, an opportunity for the, the wine producers to look at this space as maybe regaining some of their customers, but certainly opening up the doors to new customers in new space. So, you know, I think it is an opportunity to add day parts, to add consumers, to add new opportunities to their total product lineup.
1: In terms of just like tracking all this data, is it it's its own separate category? Like it wouldn't be part of the wine data in terms of consumption. Is that is that correct?
3: That is a good one too. So when we started in this and looking for data, very honestly, 10 years ago, you couldn't find it because the only thing selling in this category, nobody knew where they were selling under what skew, if you will. Today, it is very much put in the place right next to the alcoholic beverages. So it is tracked. It is you know in competitions and markets and research, and it is tracked right alongside the alcohol categories, and now having come to its own category that you can actually find data on. Similarly, you know, as where it is sold, it is still sold in most markets or retail Mm -hmm. environments within the, you know, same aisles as the alcohol products. So it is very much seen as a, you know, an alternative to right now. And so it is tracked that way. You can find the data that way. You can find it in a store that way. And I'll be honest, I think as creativity expands and innovation continues, there's a lot more space outside of those aisles. So in the you know, functional beverages, as Kayla mentioned, in the botanically infused, but a wine-based product, there's a lot more room. And that's where when you say, you know, wine consumption's going down, what does that mean? It is such a big opportunity that I think people need to really get their heads around. Is wine as a base for a beverage opens up so many doors. And there's still health benefits as have been seen in some of the recent studies, especially in the non-alcoholic wine products. There's still the same resveratrol benefits, the same opportunities that a non-alcoholic product can offer, whether it be in the wine aisle or in the soft drink aisle, but using wine as a base.
0: I am curious on how some of your brands that use your services go to market. Do they leverage their existing brand and make a low or no alcohol product? Or do they carve off a separate brand for those products and market them in their own way, not to not to impact their existing brands?
2: I would say neither because you're starting off that question with the assumption that most of our clients have other brands. And in reality, most of them are startups.
0: Really? Okay.
2: Yeah. They are folks who got, you know, money and experience in, in finance and marketing, and maybe tech, they have what they need to invest in a new business and they're seeing the trends and they're just executing. Because of that, most of them are not coming from the wine industry and therefore need our help to help them launch the brand and figure out where to package, where do we buy the base wine, you know, all of these logistics. And so our services beyond just removing alcohol and product development also have started. A little bit more into the project management realm as well.
0: Okay. I would have assumed that because you said that a lot of the US space was the majority was about, you know, adjustment early on and that's now been moving. I would assume some of those big players came to you and be like, hey, we're going to take our hands. Like you see, you see a lot of people entering uh, traditional wine brands starting to enter the seltzer market. I just assumed that would have been parallel to some of the low and no alcohol market as well. But I guess that's not the case?
3: It's more the case in the low alcohol. My simple answer is very large wine producers are somewhat risk averse. And these categories have been seen as very risky, uh, especially as to what it might do to their brand. So, you know, to your question and Kayla's response, a lot of the players, especially in the no alcohol, are startups. I've never been in the space or, you know, have a different kind of product out there. And this is where they want to play in the wine space. Now we are starting to see some of the major players move into the low alcohol. You've got products out there produced by big winemakers. Most everything I've seen, well, I shouldn't say that, about 50-50 use an existing brand and offer a lower calorie version of it. You've seen that with Kim Crawford, you've seen that with Cupcake, you've seen that with, you know, some of the others. So they're doing sort of a parallel. But when it comes to the no alcohol of any of the large players that I can think of. And a lot of them are outside of the U S they have put it under a different branding. I personally think that, you know, for two reasons, one, it's the risk category. And two, as anyone who's tasted a no alcohol wine can tell you, it is not, going to taste like your full alcohol wine. It is different. So if you put it under the same brand, you have that automatic comparison of, you know, why doesn't it taste like this? And it's not going to, it is a different product.
0: So given that most, many of your clients, especially in the no alcohol space are startups, I am curious because distribution is a a challenge getting into Grocery stores and retailers, like that, that's a lot of work. That is part of the complexity. Obviously, if you're even for food products, right? So, are you seeing a large D to C play with those startups, or are they still going the traditional route?
2: Yeah, we we see everyone at least start with DTC. That's been easiest, mostly because I don't think the federal government was really ready for non alc to be so big. So now they're like, what do we do with it? It's wine. It's not wine. They require an adult signature, but it doesn't have the alcohol taxes. Like everyone is kind of confused right now. So, what's been easier is doing a lot of marketing in social media and things like that, and then just keeping it in that online space. And we're starting to actually see online retailers pop up specifically for non-alcoholic beverages. Examples would be Better Roads, Boisson, Nano Bar. They are all online. Only non-alcoholic beverages, and they sell the through multi categories. So spirits, wine, cider, beer, whatever they can can provide. We're seeing a lot of our clients have success by working through them because that can be a central place for someone who's interested in non-alk to go to and then explore beyond just having to find everyone's individual website.
0: I'm shocked that you still require an adult signature for no alcohol wines. That that's that seems mind-boggling to me.
2: Yeah, I, I think a lot of the regulations right now don't. Make 100% sense. They'll be addressed with time, as they all will. It's definitely been an interesting journey to kind of navigate this gray area with our clients and then in turn with the legality of the products.
0: Distributors obviously come to you guys and say, hey, we're looking for products in this space. Is that an area where I would would assume that going directly to you guys to to figure out what's being made? Because it's probably not super transparent who all the clients are if they're looking for products. Has that been a major source of outreach from the distributors?
3: Yeah, I think most recently we've begun to see that, you know, here, especially here in the U.S., because the category is really still in its infancy. Distributors weren't necessarily believing they needed to bring it in. And so it's really only been in the past probably 12 months that we're starting to see that. And we have both the online retailers as well as other distributors coming to us now and asking if we can put them in touch with, guide them, help them, recommend the types of products they might want. Yeah,
2: And a fair amount of retailers as well who are looking either looking for us to point them in the right direction for products to showcase... Or they want their own. If you can think of them, we're probably talking to them.
1: <laughs> so what do you think will be the key driving force behind this whole sector for the next five years or so?
3: Quality and choice. One of the most interesting things we've seen is the launch of the entrepreneurs in the non-alcoholic space. The more that have come to market and the quality products that have come to market, the more the large players are interested in getting into the market. And so I really do believe that as good products are getting out there across all the categories, wine, beer, spirits, ciders, as more products are getting in the hands of consumers, the more consumers want. And that growth in mead state or in what we call push or pull, as the consumers are pulling more people will get into it. And it's just sort of a circular aspect. The more that's out there, the more people want, the more people want, the more that's out there.
1: Right? Are there any leaders or people to watch in this space that are real, really focused on the quality aspect?
2: I think if you just went on to any of these online retailers, you'd see a ton of them and probably would be quite surprised at how many options there are. There's a fair amount of Really incredible products. I know. Looking at, I think it was your Instagram, Robert. You had had Sovi Wine Co. Yes. Yeah, um,
1: that's our friends, a friend of ours. Great.
2: Huh? Yeah, yeah. No, I've had their products. They're wonderful. Shirley Hand on Heart, which is a product that we actually work with Miller Family Wine Company on. There's just, there's just so many Joyous semblance. I mean, yeah. Check out these online retailers because whether or not we make them, I, I just think that we just want to support the category. And there's so many good products out there. And we're in this really incredible stage right now where, yes, there's competition between brands. But overall, we all succeed when the category grows. And that only happens when better and better products are launched. And so it's been a really fun experience being involved in a competitive but also very supportive group of new brands and and new uh, innovators.
0: As we wrap up this episode, we'd like to always end on a personal note. So we wanted to know what was the most memorable wine, including low or no alcohol wines, but not not tied to that necessarily if you don't want it to be, that you've had in the last year and who did you drink it with?
2: I can go first. So one of the wines that we actually work on is in the cannabis space. We're not a cannabis company at all. But of course, if you can't have alcohol in a product that has cannabis, our services lend well to that category. So there's a woman by the name of Jamie Evans. She's the self-proclaimed Herb Psalm. She's a wine sommelier who's now a cannabis sommelier as well. And she's launched a product called Herbasi. And it's a cannabis-infused rosé wine, sparkling. And it's been incredible working with her. And and just every time I, I taste that product with her, because she brings this level of Quality and elevated experience to a cannabis-infused beverage that I think mirrors that what we do with wine. You know, wine is just is such an incredible product, and there's so much to it in, in terroir and, and the story and, and the experience. And a lot of the cannabis products that I've tasted don't have as much of that. And so she's really mirroring those two industries, and it's really great to see and kind of experience that and taste the products and, and have her talk about it and talk about food pairings and. And just everything beyond just what that product tastes like. It's something that if you're in California, I recommend you check out. But unfortunately, it can't cross state
3: lines.
0: (laughs) And Debbie, what about you?
3: Staying in the no-alk space, actually, I'd have to say probably the most memorable was earlier on in sampling a product, again, that we've had some involvement with, but really was the first I had sampled in sort of this functional Version of a non-alcoholic wine, and it was a wildlife product out of the UK, and it's non-alcoholic based product sparkling that is really infused with botanicals. And I think it was just such an interesting format, and yet extremely pleasurable. It's a sparkling product, but it, it really took for the first time that I had sampled the non-alcoholic wine space, and and really morphed it into sort of this luxury beverage. And so for me that was really memorable, really to say what, you know, what is the broad spectrum of what could be done here and yet still fill that sort of need state. And that that was really interesting. That one I actually tried for the first time with our COO, Jerome Nathan, who we've kind of been in this space together. And so for both of us trying it for the first time was really interesting as to what that level of creativity could really bring to this
0: category. Wow. It sounds like a super creative space. Uh, Thank you for both for sharing those amazing examples. And we want to thank you for, you know, giving our listeners so much information about this burgeoning space that a lot of people are curious about.
3: Absolutely. Thank you for having us. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you. And don't forget you can become a patron of X Chateau by visiting patreon.com slash X Chateau. If you'd like to support us to continue delivering content that the wine industry needs.
2: Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers.